Welcome to Radio Physics, a collaboration with the Aspen Center for Physics, KDNK Community Radio in Carbondale, and advanced physics students from Roaring Fork Valley High Schools. The students spend a week working at the center during the summer and get to talk one-on-one to some of the distinguished physicists who are here. I'm Patty Fox, and I'm hosting today's program, which was recorded during the teen summer program at the Aspen Center for Physics. Ben Spicer and Kai Driscoll are rising seniors from Mark Whitley's IB Physics class at Aspen High School. They will be interviewing Amir Yacobi. Amir is a professor of physics at Harvard University, following a bachelor's degree in astro- uh, aeronautical engineering, aeronautical engineering, hmm. and a master's degree in theoretical physics. Professor Yacobi turned to experimental condensed matter physics. He received his PhD in 1994 from the Wiseman Institute of Science in Israel, and he joined the Harvard faculty in 2006. His current interests are in understanding the behavior of low dimensional systems and their applications to quantum information technology. And luckily, the students have their um, questions in line, so they will be able to um, have Amir really explain all of that, right? Uh, so I read you did work with quantum mesos- mesoscopic systems. Could you explain what those are? Yeah. So mesoscopic physics is a is is a uh, basically a dimensional scale. It it sets the scale between microscopic that describes the behavior of atoms and molecules, and macroscopic that describes the behavior of very large systems. Mesoscopic is a range where the effects of quantum mechanics, which we haven't touched upon yet, uh, are really amplified because on that scale, uh, the the wave nature of uh, particles is extremely important. When did you decide that you were a physicist? Ooh, that's a, a tough question. So as, as uh, Patty introduced, I actually did not study physics. Uh, I was uh, fascinated by airplanes since I was very young and, and actually pursued that. So I became an aeronautical engineer. I actually worked as an aeronautical engineer for a good number of years in the uh, military industry. Um, I think what made me switch to physics was realizing that in that industry, aeronautical engineering, uh, higher degrees, people with PhDs, were not as needed uh, as uh, in physics. And I wanted to pursue uh, further education, so I decided to switch to physics. Um, I'm curious, what's it like having an engineering background while you work in physics? Are there topics that overlap? Oh, 100%. Um, So I think anything you study within the sciences is a very solid background because you have to study um, a good background in math, uh, in physics, uh, thermodynamics. So when I study aeronautical engineering, for example, I had to study uh, how engines work, and that was thermodynamics, you know, uh, strength of material structures, etc. cetera. Uh, everything I studied helps. Actually, a topic that we're researching today is called hydrodynamic flow of electrons. 
where they behave very much like gas or fluids, just like air over a, a wing. Uh, and so it was really fun to kind of remind myself everything that I've learned a good, good number of years ago uh, as an aeronautical engineer. Uh, so yeah, everything you study is very, very useful. How has quantum mechanics changed since you've joined the field? I wouldn't say quantum mechanics changed. You know, quantum mechanics was uh, basically described in the beginning of the 20th century. Um, and since then, I'd say the main thing that has developed is the behavior of large number of particles. So basically, quantum mechanics, we understand very well the behavior of individual particles. You take an electron, and we know to describe how it behaves. But when you put many electrons together, uh, like you know all the electrons that fit inside an aluminum piece of metal, uh, they behave very oddly. For example, if you cool down a piece of aluminum, it becomes superconducting. Superconductivity is not a property of any individual electron. It's the property of the collective. And so these emergent phenomena, these phenomena that emerge because you have a lot of particles interacting together, is something that has taken uh, beautiful shapes and forms uh, and really surprised us physicists over the past several decades. Uh, how do you experiment with quantum mechanics? So generally, what I find interesting about experiments is that, um, you know, I see myself as smart enough to ask nature questions. I'm not smart enough to actually figure out what the answers are. And nature very, very frequently surprises us. Um, I think when you cool things down and... Um, you basically disentangle a lot of the complexities that have that that material systems have when uh, the system is warm. Then quantum mechanics man manifests itself very very strongly. So a lot of the experiments that we do are done at very very low temperatures. You probably know that there is an absolute zero of temperature. We cannot go below that. We're doing our experiments at about ten thousandths of a degree above absolute zero. And the difference between 10 thousandths of a degree above absolute zero and 100 thousandths of a degree, a tenth of a degree, is the same as room temperature and minus 200 degrees. So it's a logarithmic scale. Any factor of 10 on that scale changes the behavior of, of the system dramatically. So we do a lot of our experiments cold. How do the movement and behaviors of individual electrons differ from that of electrons in groups? Oh, so they, they manifest themselves in, in a huge, uh, hugely rich uh, ways. Uh, for example, um, when you have many, many electrons interacting together, um, you know already that there is kinetic energy, basically describing the motion of electrons. And there is then electrostatic energy. It's basically the repulsion. You know, electrons have charge and they repel each other. So there is an electrostatic energy. It turns out that the competition between these two energies can uh, cause the system to behave very, very differently. Systems where the kinetic energy dominates, namely they're very weakly interacting, uh, are systems where m most often the behavior of the collective is just the sum of the behavior of individual particles. 
But in systems where these repulsive interactions are really strong, uh, that is where emergent phenomena occurs. One that you're very, very familiar with is magnetism. Magnets are things that we have known for thousands and thousands of years, but it did require quantum mechanics to explain. So it waited thousands of years to actually really describe magnets. Uh, but then there are peculiar emergent phenomena where you have a collective of electrons that are interacting, and the system behaves as if the particles themselves break up, and they behave as if their charge is fractionalized. Uh, so instead of, suppose I have 10 electrons, basically the system behaves as if I have 30 one-third electrons. Uh, and, and you can see the manifestations of these fractional charge, fractional spin. Electrons have spin, they spin around. So all these things are emergent. And it's a property that emerges inside the solid. Uh, and you can't pluck out these one-third electrons because outside the solid you only have electrons. So that's why condensed matter physics, solid state physics, is really rich because inside that solid, uh, particles can behave in a really, really different way than you would just encounter in in our universe. Um, is there like an end goal that you're working on or something that you would like the next generation of physicists to discover in your field? So I think that's, that's an excellent question. You know, I, I, the, uh, physics can largely, I'd say, be divided into two uh, categories. One is directed research, where we have, um, you know, we're, we know where we're going, we want to be able to demonstrate a particular phenomenon. Uh, and that's very important, especially if we're trying to develop applications based on our understandings. Uh, but most of the big discoveries in science have, um, have been serendipitous, basically just luck. People stumbled upon something interesting. And it's not entirely luck. You have people who have a good sense of direction and they know where to look. Uh, but as I mentioned already earlier, na nature is very, very clever. And we're very often not clever enough to predict how it's going to behave. But we are smart enough kind of to navigate and look. Uh, so when I, you know, students join my group, I often ask them, suppose you're setting up to do an experiment and you have some hypothesis of what the outcome of that the experiment would be. And that's usually a good exercise to have. I'm sure when you're doing your experiments in labs, you have some hypothesis, some expectation. And I ask them, you know, what, what would be the preferred outcome? That you see what you expected or that your experiment failed? What do you guys think? Uh, to see what you expect. What about you, Kai? Um, depends on what you're looking for. Yeah, so I usually tell them, if you see what you expect, that's when your experiment really failed. <laughs> and, and the reason is, you haven't learned anything. Mm -hmm. you've, you've spent a lot of time during your, doing your experiment, setting it up, and then you found exactly what you already knew. <laughs> so uh, for, for me, and what I really push my students is to look in areas where the likelihood that you will find something that deviates from what you expect is very large, and that doesn't mean that you did the experiment wrong. Finding something you didn't expect is really grand, and some, sometimes it's small. You basically 
you know, didn't think of a particular phenomena that might also intervene with what you're doing. And sometimes it could be something really big, like superconductivity, which was discovered by chance. So how does teaching students affect your understanding of physics? Well, I, first of all, I learn a lot from, from students, but you know, there are different levels of teaching. I, 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 I can describe, I'm, I'm also teaching undergrads, basically uh, freshmen uh, students who enter the, the college, um, and we've designed a special lab for their mechanics and electricity and magnetism course that follows precisely this idea. We set up experiments where we have the students think that they know what is the outcome of the experiment. And the purpose of this, these, these are designed experiments uh, is such that they discover, that they see that there is a discrepancy. They see that what they thought is gonna, is gonna happen does not agree with actually what happens. And, and you need to quantify that. How, how do you assess whether something agrees or, or does not agree? I can say more about that. Uh, but that really forces them to look back uh, at their system and, and think, well, what was I missing? What was missing in my description? And how do I modify my expectations so that um, the experiments agree with the expectations? This is the, the cycle. You know, the unique thing about physics is that you can never prove anything. We can only disprove things. In math, you can prove things. You have a set of hypotheses and you can prove the outcome. In physics, we can never prove, and so the only way we make progress is by disproving our current understanding and updating it. I'm, I'm going to make a comment here because one of the phenomena that I observe a lot here at the Aspen Center for Physics is that you're standing at the blackboard and you're you know, four of you are going, you know, one person is explaining something and the other three are listening and asking questions. And, and it's, it seems to me that you're really there criticizing, 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 because that's the way that it has to go. You have to look at every little piece of it in such a way as to pull it apart if it can be pulled apart. Absolutely so it's all correct. disproving things. And I've always thought that physicists had to have a great sense of humor and a pretty strong ego to be able to stand at the blackboard and take it from their friends over and over and over. And, and usually it ends in laughter. And it's just, a, it's just an amazing process just that I observe. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think, um, I mean, the scientific process is indeed a lot of debate. Uh, but it's debate because usually we cannot solve our, basically, uh, we cannot solve the, proper the problem precisely. So what happens, you know, in condensed matter physics, up to now, all phenomena that we're familiar with are consistent with the description of quantum mechanics. We don't need to invent a new fundamental theory of nature. But this doesn't mean that we can just take quantum mechanics and describe every phenomena that we see out there because the problems are just way, way too complex. So what happens is we start making approximations in our description so that we basically capture the essential parts of the problem and we neglect the things that are irrelevant. Uh, and sometimes we make mistakes in doing that and that's why we need to check our theories against experiments. That's the way we basically, that's our compass. 
we have to always make sure that whatever we're predicting is consistent with experiment. And in fact, it has to be consistent with all prior observations. There can't be one that disagrees. All prior observations have to be consistent with our current understanding. Um, of all the projects you've worked on over the years, do you have a favorite project or one that you look back on and think of most often? I, I don't think so. Um, I mean, to me, a lot of what I do feels like solving riddles. Uh, as, I, as I mentioned, you know, we like to encounter things that we did not expect, we don't understand, and then we just, you know, spend days, weeks, months, and off sometimes years scratching our heads together with the entire community figuring out what, what's missing, what is going on. Uh, I'd say that's the highlight. That's the aspect that's really beautiful in my mind, and um, I've encountered it, you know, encountered it time after time after time. I'd say eight of out of every 10 experiments that I do has a surprise that I haven't expected. So it's really rich. When you encounter something or a problem that you don't understand, what's your general strategy to attack the possible conclusions that aren't or false? Oh, that's the million dollar question. I think uh, if, if I could teach my students to do that, they would just replace me immediately. Uh, I think that's, you know, that's our strength and I don't even know how to articulate it, but I could say, you know, very often when I encounter a problem, I don't know what the solution is, but I always know what to do next. So it's really this kind of random walk. I have a very good sense of what we should try to do next. And for some odd reason, that kind of eventually brings us to, the, to, to a solution. Uh, so, so I think it's that sense of knowing what to do next or having a, a good sense of what to do next is, 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 is the strength. Uh, how has technology affected like your work in these fields? Oh, that, that, uh, that is actually an amazing uh, progression. When I did my PhD, these uh, refrigerators that I mentioned that cool our systems down, I actually built one of those uh, from scratch. It took me a good number of months, you know, designing, machining, all the parts, etc., soldering them together. Today, you buy the same instrument. So, you know, it, it costs a lot, but hey, that's where government funding comes. Um, and, and you just get it so, so, you, so the way technolo the technology basically allows us to do things that you know, I wouldn't have imagined, computing power today and our ability to acquire data, even our ability to observe and look, visualize data, which really helps see patterns, connections uh, in what we're seeing uh, has, has changed dramatically. So we, we, I'd say many, you know, Quite often, the instruments that we have in the lab are ones that we have developed because um, industry has not produced these kind of instruments. Uh, but very often, after some time, industrial companies will pick it up and will sell these, these instruments uh, to the community. So, so we're both using a lot of what's existing and we're updating continuously with modern technology and we're developing state-of-the-art instrumentation uh, that will be kind of the commercial or common, commonly used ones in, in a decade or two. What problem are you currently working on right now? So we're actually working on a variety of problems. I'll highlight maybe just one. Um, so we, you know, you, 
we use computers, computers use bits, and, and bits are um, entities that we can tune them to be either zero or one. It's a binary system. One thing that we know from quantum mechanics nearly a century already is that in nature things can can behave oddly and they could be at more than one configuration at the same time. So if I would like to apply that to a bit, these bits could be both zero and one at the same time. So it gives you a sense of a little bit of kind of parallelicity, right? Things could, could be, instead of running the computation once when the bit is zero and once when it's one, I'm going to run it when it's simultaneously zero and one. I'm going to all, all answers at the same time. This is called quantum computing. This is a very, very big area in physics. In fact, some implementation of quantum uh, computing uh, are being pursued by companies at the moment, Google and Microsoft and IBM. Uh, but there is one version of quantum computing this, that, that I would call unconventional. As much as quantum computing is unconventional in its own, there is even a more unconventional quantum computing. And it's based on uh, basically these kind of emergent particles that we discussed before inside the solid that have really peculiar properties uh, that when you exchange them, you just take two particles and you just move one around the other, it turns out that uh, that can constitute a operation, a computational operation. And so we're pursuing these kind of ideas. They're very, very fundamental. Uh, in, in fact, no one has really demonstrated one of these bits yet. Um, but the ideas, you know, theoretically are solid. Uh, and so we're trying to basically build these properties into material systems in order to explore them. When you're experimenting, I'm sure you like find different results than other people. What's the process of comparing those results and finding out which is actually the right one? So in, in my field, I'd say you, anytime you do an experiment, you want to repeat it, uh, first of all, because you want to see, you know, in any experiment, there's going to be noise. Your instruments are noisy. Any quantity that you try to measure is not going to be reported precisely. There, there are uncertainties that have to do both fundamental, but also just instrumentation. So you want to repeat something. And, and for me, if, if I see a result that has repeated uh, in my experiment, that builds my confidence that this is a real thing and not just a fluke. Uh, I've never encountered a situation where I have, you know, we published a result that we have repeated and others were not able to repeat it. Um, I think that partly it's because in the physics that we are doing, um, you can control the parameters of your system pretty precisely. So, so it's not as if you don't know what the properties of the system is and there is a lot of unknowns. There is a lot of known. We bring the system into parameter regime that are uh, outside where previous theories have been able to predict in order to discover new things. But overall, we're controlling the system pretty well. So I think the way... Um, to settle these things is just repeated experiments, and if something does, is not repeated, then you should be very suspicious of your results. And there we're going to end. Thank you so much, Amir Yacobi. Did I get that right that time? <laughs> Professor at Physics at Harvard University. And Ben Spicer and Kai Driscoll, who are rising seniors from Aspen High School. Thank you all for joining Radio Physics. Radio Physics.